they, they got the hip-hop going. I got to, you know, put my MC voice on and stuff. Thank you, brother. Man, well, my name is Jeremy. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here at the Brook. If this is your first time here at the Brook, I just want to say welcome. Again, we want to extend our welcome to you. Uh, my prayer is that I'm able uh, to meet you and that you've already gotten to meet some of the people I'm here at the Brook, and also my prayer is that you would feel the love of God in this place. Uh, you know, you're, you're never too far uh, to, to come to God. God is calling you if this is your first time, and we're glad uh, that you're here today. Uh, well, if you guys could open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and that's uh, page 947 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't own a Bible... Uh, you could take that Bible, consider it a gift from us. We're going to be in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. And as, as we get there, as you turn there, uh, many of you know that our lead pastor, whose name is Eric Rivera, he's in Liberia, Africa. Uh, he's training a group of rural pastors are there, many out there, many of which uh, do not have many resources. They, they don't have resources to study their Bibles. And I actually had the opportunity to speak with Pastor Eric earlier this week. He called me, and uh, I was just asking him, like, hey, man, what's going on out there? How's, how's the church is doing? And he was just excited. He's like, man, I can't wait to, to come to the brook and tell you guys what's going on. And uh, as he was talking to me, there was this, there was this uh, group of kids singing. It sounded like a kid's choir. And I thought, like, the heavens just opened. And I'm, like, here, like, on the phone, like, oh, snap. Yo, yo, uh, Pastor Eric is, are they singing worship to the Lord? Man, that sounds beautiful. And he's like, he like, he like paused for a second. He was like, nah, man, that's John Legend. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm like over here ready to worship the Lord and stuff. And they're listening to, to John Legend. But uh, he comes back soon. So please pray for, for traveling mercies. And uh, for God's work out there in Liberia, God is doing a wonderful thing. Um, but we also know that that comes with a spiritual opposition. Satan doesn't want the church to grow there in Liberia. And that's why he's out there. So, so keep, keep praying for him. So Romans uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Can, can we stand for the reading of God's word this morning? We're going to be looking at one, one verse and one verse only. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. God the Holy Spirit says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Father God, I just want to pray for us, Lord, this morning. God, I pray that the, the seed of your word would fall on fresh soil, God. Lord, we all need a word from you this morning. God, we are, are, are fragile people. Lord, we're people who live with many weakness, weaknesses, Lord. And this morning, God, we need to hear from you, Lord. We need our, our minds to be renewed by you. So, God, I pray, Lord, that as the word is preached, Father God, that you would do business in our hearts, God, and that we would leave here transformed. 
God, let the meditations of my heart and the words that I speak be pleasing to you, O God. In the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. A psychiatrist by the name of Viktor Frankl was a prisoner in the late 1940s in a Nazi concentration camp. This was a, a professional. He's a professional of sorts. And here he is in a Nazi concentration camp, literally uh, dying. And in these camps, what would happen is people would be starved to death, tortured, and ultimately uh, mutilated to death. And uh, through the torment of being in the Nazi camp there, he noticed something. He noticed that there were some people who lived with hope enough to get through their circumstances while others didn't. I mean, how could we blame those who were literally being persecuted, annihilated in their body, mutilated, being tortured for losing hope, right? But he said this one day, in quoting Friedrich Nietzsche, Frankl, the psychiatrist, he said, he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. And he ultimately came to the conclusion that people could live through anything. They could live through any suffering as long as they had a reason to live. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we have all asked deep questions of life. Or if you haven't, you will one day. What's my purpose? Why am I here? What's the reason for me living? If you're like me, maybe you've even gotten depressed, stressed out. If you're like me, maybe you've, you've roamed through this, this life aimless, just wondering, like, God, why am I here? What am I doing with my life? And that could lead us to some deep grief if we can't find the answer to that question. Well, as we look at God's word, we have good news for us today. It was good news to me. The text tells us about a life worth living. And we're going to look at that. In the study of our text, what we're going to see is three things. We're going to see that a life worth living is a life approved by God. A life worth living is offered up to God. And then we're going to see what the marks of a life worth living are. Okay? tracking with me? So we're going to look at that a life worth living is approved by God, offered up to God, and then we're going to look at the marks of what it looks like to live this life, this joyful life that I'm talking about. But first, a life worth living is a life approved by God. Well, if we look at Romans 12, chapter 1, which you see is that this verse is a commandment. That comes with the precursor, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Everybody see that? You could underline that word, by the mercies of God. It's, it's crucial. You could even circle that word, by, or how. That's what it indicates. How. By the mercies of God, you're going to do what I'm about to command you. Everybody tracking with me? So what we'll see is that approval from God only comes from the mercies of God. But let's consider two things. Let's look at what a life without the mercies of God looks like. And then let's look at what a life with the mercies of God looks like. All right? 
Let's look at what a life without the mercies of God looks like. Well, without the mercies of God, first and foremost, we're considered unrighteous before God. When we say the word righteous, what we mean is completely right and completely just. Everything that is good. And God is the only one that can define good. God is the only one that can define what's right and what's just. Because he's God. He's our creator. So to say that we are unrighteous means, one, that we're not the standard of righteousness of what's right and good. That he's the standard and that we fall short of what's right and good. And we know this because when this was written, this book was written to, to a group of believers in the city of Rome. If you get to read ancient Roman society, you'll see that Rome was the epicenter. It was the capital. And here there was a church comprised of both Jewish people and Greek people. And they were, they were learning how to live this life with Christ together in community. And what Paul is, is, is making the case of throughout this book is that all of y'all are jacked up. Everyone, whether Jew or Greek, whether Puerto Rican or Mexican, whether black or white, all of us are jacked up. But there's good news. But I, but I, but I, but I, wanna, I want us to hear what he says about our jacked upness, our unrighteousness. And Romans chapter 3, a few passages before, he says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And he's quoting from the Old Testament. So we see that apart from the mercies of God, which we're going to look at, we're unrighteous before God. And also, without the mercies of God, we have no hope when we die and stand before God. Isn't that crazy? That you can live this life how you want to live it. You can do whatever you want. That's your choice. But when you die, you will meet your maker. I will meet my maker. My life has an expiration date. I was reminded of this yesterday as I was on the highway and my tire just completely blew out on me. So this is serious. And we know this from Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. That not only, not only are we unrighteous before God, but when we die, we stand under the wrath of God because of our unrighteousness. Because we inherently, we naturally choose to live lives that we want to live, not the way God wants us to live. All of us, myself included. And this is what he says in Romans 1, 18. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, say unrighteousness, their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So he says the wrath of God is against all unrighteousness. Everyone who chooses to live their life how they want to live it. Everyone who says, God, I don't want to live according to your standard. I want to do things my way. He says the wrath of God is against all unrighteousness, and all of us on our own strength are unrighteous. And he says that because of our unrighteousness, we actually suppress the truth of God. We press it down. We know that God exists. We look at creation. We, 
we see our capacity to love and we say, man, there's something more to this life than just me. But we suppress the truth because of our unrighteousness. So without the mercies of God, ultimately, we aren't approved by God on our own. And that's scary. Because we could die any second. And if we don't live by the mercies of God, we're under his wrath for an eternity. But the good news is that here in this text it says, by the mercies of God before he commands us. A life, we, so we consider a life without the mercies of God. Let's look at a life with the mercies of God. The mercies of God the Father are centered on Jesus. You see, Jesus was the ultimate righteous person because he was God. In about 30 AD, he was was murdered on a cross for all unrighteousness, even though he himself did everything that was right. And I could just imagine God the Father in heaven and Jesus just having a conversation. And 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 God looking at humanity and saying like man they need mercy the world needs mercy that word that you see in your bibles for mercy that word means to have compassion to the point that you just want to help out that you're stirred up in your innermost to help people who are helpless God He saw our state. He saw that we're helpless apart from his intervention. He saw that apart from his intervention, we were under his wrath. And if you were to read the book of of 1 Peter, what you would see is that God is patient, desiring that no one should perish under his wrath. So God, one day, he looked at Jesus. He was like, yo, listen, man. This is the way I imagine it, my sanctified imagination. He said, you see those jokers down there? You see Jeremy down there? You see so-and-so, Fulanito and them? Man, they're helpless without you. And Jesus said, I will willingly lay my life down for them. And God the Father said, man, this has been my plan since eternity past, even before I created the world. This is how I'm going to glorify myself through people. Those unrighteous people that don't want nothing to do with me, Why don't we save them? And Jesus went on a mission, and for 33 years, he always obeyed God. And then, when he was 30 years old, he began to preach the good news that I'm telling you, telling us about the mercies of God. And not only did he live the righteous life that was required of us to have a relationship with God, but he took the penalty that we deserve for not living that righteous life, which is death. Death on a cross. But how do we access that into our account? Because Jesus dying on the cross and him raising from the grave on the third day, that's a historical instance. That's in a, a historical occasion. And that sacrifice could be counted as our punishment for our sin. But the question is, how do we access that? How do we get the death of Jesus credited to our account so that we don't 
pay the ultimate price for our unrighteousness. How does that happen? Do we try to do good works? Do we wake up every morning and say hi to our neighbors? Hey, man, how you doing? And pick up their, their newspaper? Is that, is that how, we, how we get to God? Is that, is that how we access the great love of God, the mercies of God? No. The way that we access the, the mercies of God is simply by our faith in Jesus. To have faith in Jesus means that you believe that Jesus died for your sins, that Jesus died for your unwillingness to be righteous before God and my unrighteousness before God. Having faith in Jesus is having reliance that Jesus not only paid for your sins, but also that Jesus rose from the grave, therefore saying that you too will one day raise from this life as we know it, even though you die physically, and that no longer sin, Satan, and death has power and dominion over you as you live. It's just by your faith. Just by believing. It's not by doing good works. Because even our good works have bad heart inclinations. Often. It doesn't come from a pure place. So God being rich in mercy. God being so compassionate toward us. So compassionate toward me. He sent Jesus down. He sent Jesus down here on earth. And it's only through our faith in Jesus. It's only by you believing in Jesus that God says, you are forgiven of your sins. And because I look at Jesus taking the punishment that you deserve and raising from the grave, I accept you. I approve of you. It's not something I earn. It's not something I could do to lose. So as we look at this, I, I think about my time in elementary school. Growing up in Florida, you, you go to elementary school until fifth grade, and then it's from sixth grade to eighth grade. That's considered middle school. I think it's like that in the suburbs. When I was in fifth grade, you know, my, my, um, my, my mom used to dress me. I'm just going to be real. And, uh, and my grandma, too. And uh, I'm serious. And, I mean, I had some jacked-up hair, man. Like, my hair was, like, sticking up all over the place. My mom was, like, trying to do, like, some crazy stuff. It just never worked out by the end of the day. It was sweaty. And at that time, too, you know, um, the Lord blessed me with an appetite. You know, an appetite to, uh, to devour some, some food. So, you know, my mom was just trying the best that she could. Um, at that time, and, uh, you know, my, my pants were all the way up to here, you know, if I was wearing shorts, it was above, like, my kneecaps, you know, it, it was not cool at all, so I get to sixth grade, and by that time, my older brother's in school at that time, and my older brother, you know, he, he, he kind of got hip to, like, what's cool out there, so I, I vividly remember him telling me, like, yo, man, I'm gonna be honest with you, and, he, and the thing is, he was, like, dressed like me going into school. But, like, when he would get there, he would, like, switch it up. And be like, yeah, that's, that's kind of different. So when I got to sixth grade, like, he's like, yo, man, you're not going to survive like that. You got to, like, you got to, like, loosen up your, your, your laces, 
put your pants down, you know, a little, just a little bit. You know, don't put them all the way up to here. And then what ended up happening from that time on is I felt like I was trying to just get on this rat race to get accepted. I just wanted to be cool. You know what I'm saying? I started listening to LL Cool J. I had my jeans on. I started lifting up one pant leg, walking like, oh, what's up? You know, taking off my glasses, not being able to see and all of that. Like, like, you know what I'm talking about. And it was just all for acceptance. I wanted to be cool. I wanted to be him. I didn't want to get beat up and stuff like that. You know, and as I assess that, the truth is, some of us, many of us, even myself at times, we haven't graduated from an elementary, middle school mentality. Sometimes... We live this life trying to gain acceptance, even by God, by doing things perfectly, by trying to exonerate the bad things that we did back in the day, by doing good things now. Like, like all right, I'm going to do good things now in order to right my wrongs from the past. God, you'll accept that. Or, or even before people, sometimes we try to please people with the things that we do. The words that we say, we try to please people by the way that we dress, by the money that we make. Truth is, it's never good enough. Before God, He still has to deal with our wrong. Before God, He still has to deal with our hearts, which are, which are corrupted. But see, a life worth living is one of everlasting joy, not misery like me in middle school. And that was miserable trying to please a whole bunch of people. It's miserable to live that way by people's expectations or trying to be perfect and trying to right your wrongs before God. That's, that's a miserable life. But the good news of Jesus is that by his mercy, he saves us. He saw us in our unrighteous state. And if we believe in him, we can experience the joy of living life with him and being approved by God, and he sets you free from the performance-driven life. It's not based on what you did or what you do. It's based on what Christ did for you. You get that? It's not what you do that gets you to God. It's what Christ did for you that makes you right with God. And it's by your faith in believing in Jesus, believing in Jesus, that makes you right before God. By faith alone, through Christ alone. That's it. So a life worth living is one that is approved by God, but it doesn't just stay there. It's not complacent. A life worth living doesn't just chill lazy in the cut. That's, That's not what a life worth living is. A life worth living is also offered up to God. Let's read the second part of this text. Let's read it again, actually. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to, to God, which is your spiritual worship. So here, what we're looking at is the means or the way that you can offer yourself up to God. And he's saying right there in the text that you're to present your bodies, your bodies, your physical bodies, 
what are our bodies? Our bodies are the, the dwelling place of our mind, of our will, and our emotions. It's the dwelling place of our souls. With our bodies, we go to work. With our bodies, we hang out with friends. With our bodies, we sing, we dance. With our bodies, we employ everything that we do here on this earth. It's through our bodies. So he's saying the way in which you obey this command is by using your body. But then he says, he says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's an ironic term. It's an ironic term because in the ancient world, sacrifices died. They didn't live. So how does that work, God? You're telling me by your mercies I'm approved. Okay, I got that. I'm good. And you're saying that I'm supposed to do something about that. Okay, I got that. But you want me to be a living sacrifice. Sacrifice dies, but I'm supposed to live. That, that's, that's an oxymoron. Well, he's using an imagery. We, we probably don't see it at first glance because we don't live in the first century ancient world. But I want to I tell you guys some characteristics of an animal sacrifice back in the day when they would sacrifice animals. An animal sacrifice was set apart and completely given over to God. So as we said before, because of our unrighteousness, God how to punish sin. So the way that God's people before Jesus came on the scene would fellowship with God was they would take a bull, a goat, or some birds, and they would whack those things. And then when they would whack them, they would, they would put them on an altar and burn them, and God said, the punishment of your sin was put on this animal, and you got to do this continuously so that you can have a relationship with me. If you were to read the beautiful book of Leviticus, and I really do mean that, if you read that book, you'll see how God would dwell with his people by sacrificing these animals. It was completely given over to God. It had no rights. An animal sacrifice also was for the benefit, again, of other people fellowshipping with God. Or people fellowshipping with God. It was for the benefit of people. So it was set apart completely given over to God, and no longer had the rights of its previous owner. Now check this out. Back in the day, in those times, if you had animals, it was an expensive commodity. So to give up your animal in and of itself was also an act of faith, that God would provide for that animal, because that's how they would make a living, by shepherding sheep, these bulls, these birds tending to them. Here, they would sacrifice them unto God. They would give their very best so that they can meet with God. That's an animal sacrifice. And that tells us some implications for what he means by living sacrifice. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? Well, a living sacrifice lives but still has the same characteristics as that animal sacrifice. A living sacrifice, like the animal sacrifice, is completely given over to God. It says, God, I am yours completely. My mind, my will, my emotions, the way I dance, the music I sing, I give it all to you. A living sacrifice is one that exchanges your will for God's will. A living sacrifice says, God, I don't want to live for myself no more. 
That's, that's not how I want God, I want to live for you. I want to live according to your word. And a living sacrifice lives for the benefit of other people meeting Jesus. So then he ends off this section and he says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, that means set apart and acceptable to God, anchored upon the mercies of God. And then he says this, which is your spiritual worship. Spiritual worship means informed worship. That word that you see spiritual there, that word spiritual meant to have reason. Basically saying, when you worship, you know what you're worshiping. It's not some ethereal thing that you're just kind of like, what am I doing right now? No, it's informed. That word spiritual. Worship is the act of glorifying God with everything. Glorifying God with the way you eat. Glorifying God with the way you sing. Glorifying God with what you do at work. A spiritual, a spiritual worship. That's what it is. He's, so he, in effect, is saying, you presenting your bodies, you giving your entire life to Christ and living for him without reservation, that's worship. See, the thing is, we all worship something. And we tend to worship what we look at most. It could be what you see in the mirror. That's not me. It could be maybe someone in pop culture that you just live by their word. I mean, you're just listening to them constantly, constantly, constantly. It could be, it could be the money that you make. It could be the car that you drive. It could be your friends. Whatever is the center of your life, that is what you are worshiping. That is what you're offering yourself up to. But here he says, offer your life up to God. So spiritual worship is a life then that is informed by who God is and what he's done. What has he done? He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross and raise from the grave. Spiritual worship is worship that glorifies God in such a way that you dedicate your dreams to him and make his name great because he's worthy of it. I mean, he purchased you. He made you right. He was merciful. He saw Jeremy was all jacked up in the head. Spiritual worship is one that mutilates anything or takes anything away in our souls that would hinder us from honoring God. You know, some mothers like my mother did not spare the ride. My mom, you know, used to whip me like crazy. And I'm not going to report DCFS because I know nowadays they do that type of stuff. But, you know, what I know about mothers or by parental guardians often is that they could be some of the greatest lovers, right? Like my mom loves me beyond a shadow of a doubt. I know that. But I also know that my mom has a wrath that the world has never seen. You know, and, and many of us maybe have that experience where, where we're under the, the guardianship of, of someone who can love us the most, but also can throw that chancleta real, real, real um, on point. But you know what's interesting about 
about parenting. I'm not a parent, but I am a child, obviously. A child knows that she's accepted on the basis of who they are and not what they do. And when they feel accepted on the basis of who they are, they just want to please their parents. They just want to obey their guardian because they know that their parent, while they could execute wrath, could execute justice, still accepts them for who they are. It's unconditional love. And that is what compels a child usually to want to obey. Even in their discipline, right? When I know that my mom loves me. Look, I used to catch some beatings, y'all. I'm serious, kind of. Um, But if I knew my mom was correcting me out of love afterwards, it made all the difference. It made all the difference. And it made me a better man. And that's the way it is with God. You see, God doesn't accept us on the basis of what we do. God accepts us on the basis of his son. And when we look at his son and the glories of Jesus, when we see that, man, Jesus, you gave your life willingly even though I didn't deserve it, me, God, me, even though I'm suffering, Lord, even though I'm going through this trial in my life, even though it passed through your desk first because you're sovereign, you know all things, Lord, you're supreme. God, I know that you love me. And I'm going to obey you. I am going to follow you. No matter what. Because I'm approved by you. So I want to offer up my life, my body up to you, Lord, as my worship. No matter what. Because it's anchored by the mercies of God. A God who could easily execute justice. But sees our unrighteousness. And puts the punishment on his son so that we can live. So, last week, Brother Jeremy Riggs was over there. Check out his sermon. He spoke about how to discern God's will for your life. You hear it online. It's, it's amazing. He, he talked about the how. how. How do I discover what God wants me to do? This weekend, I promise it wasn't planned. I I didn't mean to go this direction, but I really believe that the Spirit of God was just pressing this on my heart. This week, I believe that he's talking about the why. Why we do what we do for God. And I can't tell you the specifics of how that's going to play out in your life. I I don't know. I don't know how your life is going to play out. But if we look at the word, and if we even look at this text, what we can draw is some marks, some characteristics, some qualities that will tell us if we are living approved by God and offered up to God. All right? You guys ready for this? All right. So first, what we got to know about this is that it's a response. It's not the means to get approved to God. You guys tracking with me? So I just want to make that clear. What I'm about to tell you are simply characteristics that are a response. They're not the way that you get to God. Many of you know that 
that one of our core values is white flag worship. That's why you see these white flags on stage. And what white flag means or conveys is surrender, saying, God, I am yours completely. I surrender everything to you. I surrender my body to you. So I made this, this, this little acronym for white flag worship. Can you, can you pull that up on the screen, Avion? Thanks, brother. So white flag worship, I just got the white in there. I didn't want to get too long-winded. As a response is this. These are the marks. White flag worship looks like wrongdoings or sin being confessed to God. You see, because we are all unrighteous, we all need to turn away from our sins. We need to turn away from living life the way we want to live them, and we want to live for God, but we need to turn away from that stuff. We need to turn away from lying. We need to turn away from cheating. We need to turn away from lust, and we need to come to God. And as I often say, when we come to God, he never turns us away because he looks at his son taking the punishment of our sin. So whether this is the first time that you hear this, or maybe you've kind of lost your appetite for God, even though you believe in him, believe in Jesus again. Believe in Jesus today. He paid the price for your sin. And confessing your sin to God is a response of the life worth living for. The next one is a deep-seated hunger for God's word. You see, when you look at the mercy of God in Jesus, you say, man, I want to obey this man. I want to embody the scriptures. I want to live this thing out. And the way that God has revealed himself has been through his word. Church family, do you have a hunger for God's word? You may not understand it at first glance, but do you want to get to know it? Because if you don't, if you don't, there's no judgment here. But ask the Lord to give you that desire. Or perhaps you need to be reminded of the good news of Jesus again. Thirdly, white flag worship as a response is invested in God's people. It's an investment in God's people. In in Psalms 133, it says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. You know, we as a church family, because we're all dealing with some mess at some level, we bring that mess up in community. And one of our biggest hindrances to our worship to God is the mess that we bring into in community. Oftentimes, we can't worship God the way that we're called to because God is like, yo, deal with that. Deal with that brother. Deal with that sister. But see, when we dwell in unity, even though it's hard sometimes, there's a joy and strength that comes when people are reconciled. There's a joy that comes when you can look at a brother, look at a sister and say, you know, you did that to me, but I just want to tell you, you are forgiven. There's a joy that comes And it exalts your worship unto God when you could come here on Sunday and just sing with God's people. 
when you can be in DNA groups and just see what God is doing in other people's lives. That's a response to what Christ has done. Because Christ didn't just die for one individual. That one individual isn't just you. God died for the church. He made us sons and daughters and made us a family. So is your response invested in God's people? Fourthly, and I'm getting into my time, it's totally dependent upon God's provision. See, when we are living a life that's offered up to God, God provides everything that we need. And one of the biggest hindrances that we have to living a godly life or living the way that God wants us to live is by our insecurities about the stuff that we have or the stuff that we don't have. And I just want to say that God will provide everything that you need. And if he hasn't provided it yet, it's maybe because you don't need it or because he's saying wait. But he wants to exalt himself through your life now and then Finally, when we are looking at the mercies of God in Jesus, everything we have is for the mission of God. So you make a lot of money. When you look at the mercies of God as a response, you say, Lord, how can I use this for your mission? If you have a little money, you say, Lord, this is the little that I have. How do I use this unto your glory? If you have a family, God, how do I take my family on mission for your glory when I look at the fact that you adopted us into a family? When I look at my singleness, Lord, how have you called me into singleness in this season so that I might glorify you and you alone? Everything you have is used for the mission of God. And church family, this is white flag worship. It encompasses everything. You know, there's a, there's a lady named Johnny Erickson Tata. There you go. She's a contemporary example of what a life worth living for is. However, at first glance, if you were to look at her, literally look at her, you probably wouldn't think so. When she was 17, she's, she's older now, she dove into the Chesapeake. Chesapeake Bay and she thought that the ground was 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 deeper than it was and it wasn't and she fell on her head and the outcome was that she was paralyzed still to this day I mean she's maybe 50 some odd years old maybe maybe even older and in a documentary of her life I was I was watching it this week she talks about a time the time when she was in the hospital but think about this this is a 17 year old girl had dreams ahead of her. I mean, she was super gifted in art, singing. I mean, she was one of those girls that you would see and you'd be like, man, she has a lot going for herself. But here she is at 17 years old with things out of her control, paralyzed for the rest of her life. And there she is on this bed and she's wrestling with God. She even contemplated suicide. He said, Lord, if we have a significance, significance in this life, here I am. I'm 17 years old, God. I'm 17 years old. I got my whole life ahead of myself. I mean, cut me a break here, God. I don't want to live like this. And as she was wrestling with God, 
this thought from the Holy Spirit came into her head. And she said this when she was wrestling. Okay, God, here I am. Prove who you claim to be in Christ. And I'm going to prove that you are real in my life. Since then, Johnny has walked with Jesus faithfully. She's completely paralyzed. She has to be aided with about nine nurses from the neck down. Everything that she does needs to have an aid, and yet she's reaching thousands, maybe even millions, by using the body that she has, the weakness that she has. question on the floor is are you living a life worth living? A life that's approved by God and a life offered up to God. Are you living that life? Am I living that life? A broke family if we are living this life it brings maximum joy. I mean looking at this documentary I was like astounded on how joyful she really was saying like, man, this is my predicament, but I'm going to worship God with everything I got. And she had so much joy. I just want to end with this. Some of the most gracious people and joyful people I've ever met in my life have been people who've either had very, very little but still believed in Jesus or have gone through immense suffering with Jesus. How can they live that way? How can they withstand the storms of life? How can they dedicate everything to God? It's because they know that they're approved by him. And they're compelled to live for him with everything that they got. So will you go 100? Will you live this life, this joyful life? I pray that you would, church family. I pray that you would. Let's pray. Father, I just... uh, I just want to thank you, Lord, for the cross of Jesus, Lord. The cross of Jesus Christ, Lord, who, by his mercy toward us, Lord, were able to stand before you, Lord. What love is this, God? What love is this that you love us, God, not on the basis of the things that we did that are wrong or sinful, Lord. Lord, you judge us on the basis of your son if we would just believe, God, and you accept us. I just pray, Lord, that we would worship you, that we would put up our white flag to you because of what you've done for us. May this be our spiritual worship to you. I pray for those who don't know you, Lord, who heard this message. I pray that they would believe in Jesus today. I pray all of this in his name. This time, I'm going to ask the prayer counselors to make their way to the front. And for the rest of us, we could rise to our feet. Perhaps you're someone who's never met Jesus, and you realize you've been living the performance-driven life pretty much since the day that you were born. And you feel the misery. You don't feel the joy of a life worth living for with Jesus. But today, if you believe in Christ, 
If you say, I am that unrighteous man that I believe, or I'm that unrighteous woman that I believe that Jesus died for my unrighteousness to make me right before God, I want to ask you, come up this morning and pray with one of these folks up here. Or perhaps you, you realize that your worship of God has been stagnant. It's, it's been hindered. I want to ask you to come and do business with God. Come and get prayed for. Right, church family? Let's sing unto God about his cross and surrender our lives to him.